that, Lord, your word tells us you're the same yesterday, today, and forever. Because that means what we learn about you in the past that we understand today will be true for the rest of our lives and the rest of our children's lives and the rest of our grandchildren's lives. So, God, as we dig into this supernatural series, as we dig into your word today, Lord, as we identify, um, Lord, our spiritual enemy, as we identify the strategies and the schemes and the things that he uses to keep us and our family and our friends and our communities away from you, I pray that you'll strengthen us, open our eyes and our hearts wide open today to receive what can only be received spiritually. Open our spirit wide open to hear from you and your word today, Lord. And we ask these things in Jesus' name today. And everyone said together, amen. You may be seen at Good Morning Journey. That was Brandon leading worship for us. I don't know where he went. Brandon, are you in the house? Brandon, is, um, he's been our worship intern for the last year. And he is an excited guy, as you can tell. Thank you so much. For, you're going to be tired this afternoon, man, after putting all that energy into leading worship. Brandon, thank you. If you have your Bible, we're going to be in John chapter 14. Today, we're going to kind of pick up where we left off last week. If you're new to this series, welcome. My name's Christian. I'm one of the pastors here. Uh, and we started last week a seven-week teaching series simply titled Supernatural. You'll see it on the front of your bulletin. You'll see a banner in the back. We've got some sermon notes for you inside your bulletin that will help you not only follow along, but hopefully retain a lot of important information today on the supernatural things that we are trying to learn. Uh, Last week, we got into John chapter 14, and if you look just on the top of your sermon notes, we're going to jump right into the learning today. Um, Last week, we learned about the supernatural spiritual help that was available to you and I. Jesus, in John chapter 13, 14, 15, 16, and 17 made it an emphasis in the last 15 to 18 hours he was alive to talk to his disciples about the supernatural spiritual help that would be available to them and accessible to them that he needed them to be aware of when he left and went back to heaven. He actually said in John 16, 1, if you don't learn about this and if you don't learn how to plug into the supernatural resource, you're not going to make it. You're going to fall away. We saw it happen with Judas. It happened for a little bit with the Apostle Peter. And you and I both know people who have engaged spiritually only to quit later. Why does that happen? Because of a lack of understanding of the supernatural things. But in John chapter 14, Jesus not only taught us about supernatural spiritual help. In John chapter 14, you're going to learn today that Jesus taught us about supernatural spiritual danger. And Jesus said, if you're, going to un- if, you're going to, if you're going to learn to understand basically where the plug on the wall is that you're able to plug into spiritually, you're going to have to learn what stands in between you and that plug. If you're going to learn where the faucet of my blessing is in your life so that you can really live spiritually, you need to learn what keeps the water from getting to that faucet or what muddies the water. Jesus in John chapter 14 is going to say, your only hope is to be connected supernaturally to me through my Holy Spirit. But you need to understand that when you do that, the phrase that we used last week, I had someone call me who'd been engaged in our church, who had gotten baptized, who at the very kind of height of her spiritual experience stopped coming to church for a period of four or five months. And I finally got her on the phone and said, what's ha- what's ha- I haven't seen you in months, what's going on? And she said, Christian, I feel like all hell has come against me. And I kind of chuckled, and if you remember the conversation last week, I said, it has. And I began to talk to her about the deeper spiritual things of the Christian life that she didn't understand. And it was at that time that God said, Christian, you have to teach the entire church about the supernatural spiritual things that they need to plug into, 
that they need to unplug from, that they need to be aware of, and that they need to run from if they're going to make it spiritually. So that's what we're trying to do. If you were not here last week, and I rarely say this, but if you weren't here last week, you have to go back and listen to last week's message. You've got to podcast it or watch it or download it on your phone. Um, today won't make as much sense as it should if you didn't hear last week's. But today we're going to continue our conversation in John chapter 14. If you don't have a Bible, our ushers are going to come down the aisle. They'll have one. If you want one, just wave at our ushers. We've given away more than 500 Bibles since our church started just like this. We like every Sunday to open our Bible, read our Bible, learn from it, write from it, write in it, highlight it. Um, so if you forgot one or if you don't have one, just raise your hand. If you don't have one, this is yours. Put your name in it. It's our gift to you. Thanks for coming. Go home and, uh, and, and start reading it. Um, I believe it will change your life if you dive into it with an open and sincere heart and an open and a sincere mind. Uh, maybe you're going to follow along on your phone or your tablet, whatever way you're in God's Word today. Let's get in it together. John chapter 14. We're going to start in verse 25. We're going to go through verse 31. And here's the context. Last week, supernatural spiritual help is available to you. This week, supernatural spiritual warning about the danger that happens in your life spiritually when you plug into God. Jesus said, all this I've spoken to you while with you. But the advocate, circle, underline, highlight that. If you weren't here last week, if you were here last week, it should already be highlighted in your Bible. But the advocate, the Holy Spirit, advocate means helper, by the way, if you want to make a note in your margin. But the advocate, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, will teach you all things. He'll remind you of everything that I've said to you. Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. I don't give to you as the world gives. Don't let your hearts be troubled. Don't be afraid. You heard me say I'm going to go away and I'm coming back to you. If you love me, you'd be glad that I'm going to the Father, for the Father is greater than I. I've told you now before it happens so that when it does happen, you'll believe. I'll not say much more to you, for the prince of this world is coming. You need to underline that. The prince of this world is coming. He has no hold over me, but he comes so that the world may learn that I love the Father And that I do exactly what my Father has commanded me. Come now, let us leave. Let me connect for you verse 26 to verse 30, okay? And I want you, feel free to draw in your Bible. I want you to draw a line. I want you to circle the word advocate or Holy Spirit. Circle one of those. Jesus said, I'm leaving. The Holy Spirit is coming. And he's going to get engaged in your life. Then go down to the... To, to verse 30, and I want you to circle the words prince of this world, and I, I want you to circle them, and I want you to connect those two circles in your Bible. Because Jesus says, I'm going, and the Holy Spirit, I'm going to send you a supernatural helper. He's coming to help you. But you also need to understand that when I go away, the prince of this world is coming, and he's coming to hurt you. And I'm going to prove to him how much I love the Father because I'm going to die on a cross. That's his plan for me. But you need to understand, the Helper's coming to help you. The Prince of this world is coming to hurt you. So you need to be aware of these things. You know, I believe one of the biggest gaps today in the teaching of the church is this gap of John 14:30 that the Holy Spirit is coming, but so is the Prince of the Air. One is here to hurt you. One is here to help you. And you're going to have to learn to navigate this life. And you know, if, if, if we were to say in the New Testament that there was a big three, like if I were to ask you, those of you who know just a little bit about the Bible, who would you say the three most important voices in the New Testament are? Uh, we would all agree that they are, James, that they are Jesus, Peter, and Paul. 
Uh, maybe not in that order. Maybe we'd say Jesus, Paul, and Peter. But, but we would say the big three in the New Testament, like the guys who were really downloading information from God that we needed to hear were Jesus and Peter and Paul. And if I were to tell you that those three, anything they said would be maybe more valuable than anything anyone else said, I think you would say, yeah, I agree. Those highly influential people. If I were to tell you that those three said the exact same thing about our spiritual walk, we would say whatever they zeroed in on that was the same has to be of extreme importance in our life. And what we see when we begin to study the supernatural is that Jesus in John 14, 30 said there is a spirit coming to hurt you. The Apostle Peter in 1 Peter 5, 8 said you need to be aware of a spirit coming to hurt you. And Paul in Ephesians chapter 6, 11 said a spirit is coming who can hurt you. Now here's what Peter and Paul said specifically, just so we can jump into our text today. Peter said, be alert and of sober mind. Your enemy, the devil. I want you to underline the word devil on your sermon notes. I believe this verse is written out on your sermon notes. If not, just write it down. Be alert and of sober mind. Your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. In Ephesians 6.11, the Apostle Paul said it this way, Put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. Underline the devil's schemes. So Jesus in John 14.13 said, The prince of the air is coming, be ready. Peter said in 1 Peter 5.8, The devil's coming, so be ready. Paul said in Ephesians 6.11, The devil's coming, so be ready. And we, when we talk about the devil in church, we kind of laugh it off. It's an uncomfortable conversation. It's an uncomfortable message. I'll be honest, I preach this at... At 9.15, it's one of the more uncomfortable messages I've ever given at our church. We don't often dig into the theology of the devil. But if Jesus said it's important to know about, and Peter said it's important to know about, and Paul said it's important to know about, then my question today would basically be this. If it's so important, then who is the devil and how does he work? Who is the devil and how does he work? Because from what I'm beginning to understand of Scripture, if we can't answer those questions, who's the devil and how does he work, We're going to have a hard time living well for Jesus in our Christian life. Now, one of my seminary professors wrote a tremendous theology book. His name's Dr. Elmer Towns. And here's what he says about the importance of understanding this subject. He says, a study of theology is not complete without an examination of the origin of evil, the force behind evil, and the the personification of evil in the person of Satan. But even as a study of Satanology is attempted, it's difficult to arrive at objective conclusions. The problem is that we live in a culture filled with fairy tales or false information about the devil. If we were to ask a dozen different people what they thought about the devil, we might get a dozen different answers. The primary source of correct information about Satan is Scripture and perhaps is the only reliable source. So if you and I are told by Jesus, Peter, and Paul, hey, you need to, like, you need to watch out for the devil and his plans for your life, Our question would be back to them, well, who is he and what are his plans? And their answer would be, well, let me show you. As a matter of fact, Paul said in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, 6, speaking of the Old Testament. um, The Old Testament, by the way, if you go to Israel, they call the Old Testament the Hebrew Bible. Genesis through Malachi is the Hebrew Bible. They don't have a New Testament. Uh, The Apostle Paul, speaking to the church at Corinth, speaking of the Hebrew Bible, said, listen, these things occurred. What are these things? If this verse is on your sermon notes, I want you to circle the word these things and just write down on your sermon notes, O period, T period. That stands for Old Testament. Paul told the church in Corinth, everything written in the Old Testament was written as an example for you to keep you from setting your hearts on evil things. 
I love when I talk to my Jewish friends who do not believe Jesus is a Messiah and they say, well, you can't tell me about Jesus. I don't believe your New Testament. I I don't need my New Testament. Give me your Hebrew Bible. I'll I'll walk you through Jesus being the Messiah from your Bible. You really can't even understand the New Testament until you grasp the Old Testament. And as we set out on our journey today and we say, who is the devil and how does he work? We're going to have to, like Paul said, we're going to have to go back. We're going to have to go back to the Old Testament to see who the devil was and what he does. So those are our goals today. Who is the devil and how does he work? Part one, who, who is he? Um, and Who is he and where do we see him in Scripture? Now, if I were to ask you this question, where's the first time that, um, that as Christians, if we were to pick up our Bible and just begin reading, where's the first place we would ever see the devil? And I don't mean a book of the Bible. Like, what's the first geographic location that we would ever see the devil? If we were just to start reading the history of God and humanity, where's the first place we ever see the devil? Garden of Eden. How did he get there? Like, that's a great question, right? How did he get there? Because if we're, to, if, if we're to begin to source back information, and we're to say God created all things, and God created the, the Garden of Eden, and God created Adam and Eve, and God created... We, we would say, wow, God created Satan. What, now, why would God create Satan? If God created Satan, then God created evil. If God created evil, God isn't good. I mean, that's, a, that's not just an inquiring minds want to know question. That's a deeply theological question. How did he get there? Because if we can't answer the question, who is the devil and what does he do... We're not going to understand how he works in our life. And believe it or not, most Christians will know that the devil was in the Garden of Eden, but they really won't know how he got there and why he was there and exactly what occurred to put him there. But do you know that Scripture tells us? In Luke chapter 10, 18, Jesus said to his disciples, I saw Satan fall like heaven from lightning. I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. And you read that, and, you, and, and if we were to put it in context, Jesus' disciples had just been out doing ministry, and they'd done a bunch of good ministry. And you could say, well, he was, that's, uh, he's just hypothetically, you know, he's, it's kinda, he's just speaking um, you know, in story, like, you did a good job, and I saw Satan fall, except that he's quoting a verse. He's almost quoting an Old Testament verse verbatim, which makes it sound like Luke 10.18 is not a hypothetical quote, but a historical situation. I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. So Satan fell from heaven. How how does all that work? Believe it or not, the Old Testament gives us a real good guide for that. Now, if you have your Bible, I'm going to ask you to kind of flip all over with me today. If you don't, I've provided the reference on your notes so you can go read later. The verses will be on the screens. But what we find when we look at Scripture is we actually, believe it or not, see the devil before his fall in Ezekiel 28. If you have your Bibles, I want you to flip back to Ezekiel 28. It's going to be in the Old Testament. If you find the book of Daniel, it's right before the book of Daniel. If you find the book of Psalms, which is a pretty big one that's easy to find, go past Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, Song of Solomon. Then you're going to get into some really big books, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Limitations. Then you're going to jump in to Ezekiel. And in Ezekiel chapter 28, we are given through the prophet Ezekiel a picture of the devil before his fall. We're given a, a picture of the devil before Eden. We're even given a picture of the devil before he became the devil, according to Ezekiel chapter 28. Now, if you have Ezekiel chapter 28, we're going to start in verse 12, but then we're going to jump back to verse 2. Because here's what verse 12 says. Son of man, take up a lament concerning the king of Tyre and say to him, this is what the Lord says. And I want to stop right there. 
Because some of you say, well, wait a minute, he's not talking to Satan. He's not talking about Satan. He's talking about a king. Not so fast. Go back to Ezekiel chapter 28, verse 2. In verse 2, it says, Son of man, say to the ruler of Tyre. Tyre, by the way, is not something on a car. It was a country. Tyre and Sidon were in the region of modern-day Lebanon. Um, Son of man, say to the ruler of Tyre, this is what the Lord says. If we were to read through verses 1 through 10, that all applies to a man, specifically the king of Tyre. But when we get to verse 12, we begin to hear the driving force behind the king of Tyre. And it's like God is allowing according to scholars for thousands of years, the history of spiritual things to be pulled back so our eyes can see behind the veil of what makes evil people evil. And we see here the the creation. We see the creation and the life and role of Satan before he fell from God's grace. And here's what it says, picking up in verse 12. You were the seal of perfection, full of wisdom and perfect in beauty. You were in Eden, the garden of God. Every precious stone adorns you, carnelian, chrysolite, emerald, topaz, onyx, jasper, lapis, luzili, turquoise, beryl. Your settings and mountings were made of gold on the day you were created. You need to underline that. So, so Satan was created, but he was not created as Satan. On the day you were created, they were prepared. You were anointed as a guardian cherub. The word cherub means angel. So Satan was created not only as an angel, but a beautiful angel in the beginning and a guardian angel, which means that basically he was in charge of other angels, as we understand Scripture. You were anointed a guardian cherub, for so I ordained you. You were on the holy mount of God. You walked among the fiery stones. You were blameless in your ways from the day you were created until wickedness was found in you. Through your widespread trade, you were filled with violence and you sinned. So I drove you in disgrace from the mount of God and I expelled you, guardian cherub. From among the fiery stones, your heart became proud on account of your beauty, and you corrupted your wisdom because of your splendor. So I threw you to the earth, and I made a spectacle of you before kings. Now, that narrative in Ezekiel chapter 28, verses 12 through 17, could not have been true of a human being. People say, oh, he was talking about the king. It couldn't, the, the king could not have been on God's mountain. He couldn't have been specifically created by God. He couldn't have been in the Garden of Eden with God. He couldn't have been a guardian angel. So scholars point to Ezekiel chapter 28 as kind of the birth narrative of who Satan was and what he did. So, okay, so Satan was created as an angel. He's created as a good angel. He was in the Garden of Eden. He was with God at the beginning. He, he was a beautiful angel, but it said he was an angel until wickedness was found in him. What wickedness was found in him? So we have to look at more scripture. So we go from Ezekiel 28, the devil before his fall, to Isaiah chapter 14, which tells us about the devil's rebellion. If you have your Bibles, just go back a few chapters to the left. You're going to flip past Ezekiel, Lamentations, Jeremiah. You're going to find yourself in Isaiah. Isaiah 14:12 is what Jesus nearly quoted verbatim when he talked about the historical fall of Satan from heaven. And what did Jesus reference about the devil's rebellion that can help us understand what happened one day in heaven for everything to go radically wrong before we see Satan in the Garden of Eden with Adam and Eve? In Isaiah chapter 14, verse 12, again, speaking, speaking metaphorically to a king about the history of Satan, the demonic power behind the king. Isaiah says, how you have fallen from heaven, O morning star, son of the dawn. That's the verse that Jesus was quoting when he said, like lightning. Um, 
Morning star means bright light. How you have fallen from heaven, morning star, son of the dawn. You've been cast down to the earth, you who once laid low the nations. Because you said in your heart, I will ascend to the heavens. And I will raise my throne above the stars of God. I will sit enthroned on the mount of the assembly, on the utmost heights of Mount Zaphon. I will ascend above the tops of the clouds. And I will make, I will make myself like the Most High. Now, we have five things in Isaiah chapter 12, in Isaiah 14, 12 through 14, that tell us the wickedness. Ezekiel says you were perfect as an angel until wickedness was found in you. What was the wickedness? Isaiah 14 tells us the pride of Satan welled up where the devil, as a guardian angel, desired this for himself. He said, number one, five I will statements. I will do this, I will do this, I will do this, I will do this. He said, I'll ascend to the heavens. Now, in Scripture, we see the word heaven given to us three different ways, and you can jot this down if you want to. Heaven is spoken of in the 66 books of the Bible as the atmosphere and the environment that we live in. David said, the heavens declare your glory. He was talking about the grass, the trees, the sun, the moon, the stars, the galaxies, um, just the the heavens that we're able to see. So the, the Bible refers to heaven as where we live. The Bible also refers to heaven as the place of the righteous dead. It's where you and I hope to go one day when we die. We want to die and go to heaven. Revelation 21 and 22 describes this heaven marvelously. But then the Bible also uses heaven to describe the very throne room of God. It's the abode of God, the dwelling of God. It's, it's basically where the ruler of the universe lives and dwells, the Bible says, in unapproachable light. It's where he governs the world from. And Satan said, I will ascend to the heavens. He basically, as you follow his statements, he basically says, I'm, I'm going to overtake God and become God. He says, I'll ascend to the heavens. Number two, he said, I will raise my throne above God's throne. Now, who gave him his throne? God did. God made him a guardian angel, which means that he was over a host of other angels. But he said, I'm not content just being over the host of angels. I want to be over all the angels. As a matter of fact, I'd like to be over God if I could. He said, number three, I'll sit enthroned above God. You can see how he's beginning to craft this plan to be his own God and to run the world on his own. He said, I'll ascend above heaven. I'll become greater than God is, and there'll not just be a third heaven where God rules, there'll be a fourth heaven where I rule God. And then he said in verse 5, I will be God. Now, I had someone after the first service approach me and say, Christian, how can something created rebel against its God and think that it's better than the thing that created it? And I said, do you have children that you have created? Because if you have children you've created, you can understand how... They think they're smarter than you. They know they make all... I mean, you can... It's just... It, unfortunately, it has become human nature. How did it become human nature? Because it was in the nature of this angel. Angels and human beings alike created with free will. And something caught his eye. First Timothy 3, 6 says pride. Ezekiel 28 says pride. Isaiah 14 says pride. That he just... I mean, he wanted to be God. He really envied who God was and what God was doing. So we see him before the fall is perfect... And then we see what ruined his relationship with God. But then we see his rejection from heaven. Luke 10, 28, I saw him fall from heaven. When, when did he fall from heaven? Ezekiel mentions it. Isaiah mentions it. Revelation kind of plays it out for us in a word, word picture. In Revelation chapter 12, verses 7 through 9, and you can turn there uh, if you want. And later you can read all of Revelation because it's a, I mean, it's a, it's a, 
interesting story about the history of the world and the dynamics of this supernatural struggle between God and Satan. But in verses 7 through 9 specifically, it says, War broke out in heaven. Michael and his angels fought against the dragon, and the dragon and his angels fought back, but he was not strong enough, and they lost their place in heaven. The great dragon was hurled down, that ancient serpent called the devil or Satan. He who leads the whole world astray, he was hurled to the earth, and his angels with him. And then Revelation 12 goes on to talk about how he tried to destroy Jesus as a Messiah, and how he, he tries to destroy the church. I mean, it's a, it's a beautiful picture of what Satan has been trying to do in the world, but we find out that the devil because of his rebellion got got kicked out of heaven and he got kicked to earth where we find him in genesis 2 and 3 in the garden of eden so we we know he's there if we've grown up in church we understand he's there we tell the story with him there and now we know how he got there in rebellion against god now i have people all the time say well when exactly did all of this happen i have two answers my first answer is i don't know um, my my second answer is I know a little bit. Um, I believe from my theological training, and I by no means am the most educated person in the world, but I, I've been to enough Bible college that I have a bachelor's and two master's degrees in this stuff. And I believe from all my years of study that Satan was created, that all the angels were created in Genesis 1.1. Genesis 1.1 says, In the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. And I believe those upper heavens of eternal life and the angelic hosts were created in Genesis 1-1 because Job said that the angels sat and they applauded as God created the rest of creation. So when God said, let there be light, they were like, awesome. So they were there um, because they were like, that's really cool. Um, so I believe that, that all the angels, including Satan, were created in this historically... Vague Genesis 1-1, when this, that God created the heavens and the earth. I also believe that in Genesis 1-31, when it says on the sixth day of creation God was done, and on the seventh day he rested and everything was perfect, I don't believe that in the first seven days Satan could have rebelled and been on planet earth because there's no way that God has Moses write that everything was perfect on the first week if Satan and what we believe are maybe hundreds of millions of demons were roaming the earth. That wouldn't have made sense. So somewhere between day 7 of creation and Genesis chapter 3. And remember, we, we like to think linear. So we're like, okay, on the 7th day they rested. On the 8th day Satan came. That could have been the 8th day. It could have been the 800th day. It could have been, you know, we don't know exactly when that happened. But somewhere in that span, Adam and Eve end up in the Garden of Eden. And there is the devil with them. And he's working the first day that we meet him to destroy everything that God has done. Now, let me give you some quick facts about the devil. Who is the devil? Here's some basic facts. He's known by really three kind of interchangeable words. The devil, which we've used a bunch. Satan, which the Bible interchanges as the ruler of all the demons. And then this word Lucifer. Um, and it's funny. Lucifer is actually the word light. It's the word lucient in the Hebrew and um, in the old Latin and Greek language. And in Isaiah 14, 12, when it says he felt the morning star fell from heaven, it's like first light, bright light. That, that's where Lucifer comes from. He was a bright one. Um, but we often will refer to him as that, but we don't, don't know why. There's, um, there's why. We know that he was a fallen angel, according to Ezekiel chapter 28. He was a created angel who fell from heaven. We know according to Revelation 12:9 that he leads other fallen angels. We call those demons, but demons are angels. Um, 
We know according to Revelation chapter 12 that he works to destroy the work of God. Like this is his plan on planet earth. Whatever God wants, he opposes. Whatever God works, he tries to interrupt in the lives of individuals and in the life of the world as a whole because he wants to lead the world away from God's plan for it. From Genesis to Revelation, if God says right, he goes left. If God says up, he goes down. The devil's goal is to lead everyone away from God's plan for them because he hates God, because he wanted to be God, but he was not God, and he got sent not only back to his room but kicked out of the house, and he, is, he lives in anger till the time of final judgment on him. Now, here's what's really interesting, and this is, this is not on your sermon notes, but you can write it in. Um, there are three periods in biblical history where God steps out of heaven and comes to planet earth to dwell personally with humanity. Creation, the period of Christ, and the end times. Those are the three, if we were to look in scripture from Genesis to Revelation, those are the three times that God said, I'm going to leave heaven number three and I'm going to exist on planet earth with people. Creation, the time of Christ, who came as God to planet earth to die for our sins in the end times. It, it shouldn't be a surprise that those are the three times in Scripture that we see Satan the most and we learn the most about him. It's as if every time God gets really engaged with humanity, Satan gets really engaged with humanity. And everything that I'm going to teach you is really going to come from those eras, uh, from creation, the time of Christ, or the end times, because that's, that's where we see Satan interacting at his most because that's where God is closest to his people. So, who is the devil? Hopefully you have a little bit of history on who the devil is and enough to go home and study and answer those questions for yourself. But how does he work? That's a great question and, and we get some unbelievable answers in Scripture. First, we see four ways that he has a strategy to work in our life. Remember, Paul said we, you shouldn't be ignorant to his schemes. The word scheme literally is an offensive coordinator drawing up a football play to beat a defense. It's, it's his way to make sure that he succeeds. It's strategy. Um, so what is Satan's strategy? Just looking through Scripture, we see four for the people in this room today. Um, number one, Satan's first strategy for humanity is to keep people from deciding to follow Jesus when they hear about Jesus. Like, that's his number one goal for your life, for your spouse's life, for your children's life, for your parents' life, for your neighbor's life, for anyone you've ever loved or known. His first goal of every human being that has ever lived, according to Jesus, is to be around when people hear the word of God and to make sure while they're trying to decide, do I believe this? Will I follow this? Will I attach myself to God? In the moment between hearing and deciding, he wants to come in and steal the word of God. And in Luke chapter 8, Jesus tells the parable of the sowers. He said, a sower went out and he went to sow a seed and he threw it and some fell along the path, some in the rocks, some in the thorns, some in the field. After he got done with the sermon, the, the, his disciples said, like, what does all that mean? And Jesus said, good question. Let me tell you how the devil works in the life of people. Um, in Luke eight twelve, he said, those along the path are the ones who hear and the devil comes and takes away the word from their hearts so they won't believe and be saved. So there are people like you. Maybe there are people in this room that are in this position. You go to church, you hear, you listen, you've not yet believed yet. You, you listen and the seed is kind of sitting on your heart, but you've not allowed it to sink into your spirit because you're not sure. The devil's goal for you would not be that you don't hear, but that when you hear, you don't believe. I find it odd that the devil's strategy is never to keep anyone from hearing. 
His strategy is that once they hear, to keep them from believing. So his goal for you would be that you never let it sink into your soul that Jesus was real, that he really came and that he really lived and that he really died and that he really died for you and he raised from the the dead so that he could not only forgive your sins but allow you to raise from the dead. The devil would, would want you not to believe that. And if you didn't believe that, he had done his job. But if you do believe that, unfortunately, he's not done with you. According to Scripture, if you do believe that he has a second strategy in your life, and here's his second strategy. He wants to make sure that Christians don't feel worthy to be used by God. So it's like, okay, I'm going to try to keep anyone from believing that God loves them and wants to be close to them. But if that doesn't work, I'm going to make sure that everyone who believes that God loves them and does want to be close to them feels so ashamed of the way they've lived their life that... That they, that they kind of cower away from who God is and don't feel like they can ever be close to God. In Zechariah chapter 3, the prophet Zechariah paints a wonderful picture of this occurring in the life of Joshua. At the time, Israel needed a high priest who would lead people to God. And Joshua stepped up and said, I'm willing. But Joshua, according to Zechariah, had this guilt that he said, I'm willing, but my life... Man, my, my life isn't able. My spirit is willing, but my life isn't able. And Zechariah said, let me draw the picture of what happens in eternity when someone wants to live for God, but they don't feel like they can. In Zechariah chapter 3, it says, Then God showed me Joshua the high priest standing before the angel of the Lord. And Satan was standing right at his side to accuse him. The Lord said to Satan, The Lord rebuke you, Satan. The Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebukes you. Is not this man a burning stick snatched from the fire? Now Joshua was dressed in filthy clothes as he stood before the angel. And the angel said to those who were standing before him, Take off his filthy clothes. And he said to Joshua, See, I have taken away your sin, and I'll put fine garments on you. You know, scholars believe that the Apostle Paul, in Romans chapter 8, the Apostle Paul said, Do you think there's anything that can keep you from being close to God? And he goes on to list all these things that people feel like separated them from being real close to God. But Paul said, Who is it that accuses you? Who is it that makes you feel like you're not close to God? Scholars believe Paul was referencing Zechariah chapter 3 because he said, The Lord tells your accuser to shut his stupid face because he's forgiven you. And he loves you. And he, is clean, and, he, and he has cleansed you. So every time you feel like, I'm not worthy to be loved by God. I'm not, you know, I'm not able to be loved by God. God can't use me. You tell the devil to shut his stinking face. Because God has forgiven you. That's what we love. That's Satan's strategy for you. To you to sit, for you to sit out there and think, God can never use me. I'm divorced. I'm addicted to this. I can't overcome this. I'm not a good dad. I'm not a good Christian got all these bad habits. Having been in church very much this last three months, like I, I don't think God can use me anymore. That's the devil's voice in your head. Because that, that didn't come from God. And God's telling Satan, shut up. I'll use him. You, you shut your face. I'll, I'll use him. That's Satan's plan to keep you from God is to make you feel like you just can't get engaged anymore. Satan, step three, if that doesn't work, he moves on, unfortunately. If that one doesn't work, his plan will be to emotionally crush you. So that you'll feel hopeless in this lifetime. So that you'll feel like if, there's nothing left to give. In John 10.10, 10, Jesus said, The thief, speaking of Satan, he comes only to steal and to kill and to destroy. But I've come that you might have life and that you might have it to the full. Satan would like for your life to be so busy, so overwhelming, for your marriage to be so bad, for your parenting to, 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 to feel so um, directionless. For your finances to be so tight. Satan wants to overwhelm your spirit 
to the point of having any time left for God. That's his goal for you, to steal, to kill, to destroy your life. And you know what? All of us go through these seasons. I went through this season, unfortunately, from 2006 to 2009. I was so overwhelmed with life. My spirit was so heavy with life. Just things I was dealing with. It was in those times that I was trying to figure out if I wanted to be a pastor or if I wanted to be a a school teacher and a coach. Even though I knew God had called me to be a pastor, I didn't want to be a pastor. I didn't want to work at a church. I decided I didn't know that if I liked Christians. I decided maybe everyone was a hypocrite. I decided maybe organized religion wasn't of Jesus. I was so overwhelmed emotionally. The devil hadn't kept me from being close to Jesus, and the devil hadn't convinced me that I couldn't be used, but he was, he was trying to overwhelm me to the point of not having time to be used, not wanting to be used, being frustrated over the way that I used to be used, and he was trying to crush my spirit with just the scenario of life that I lived in so that I had no time left over for God. And some of you are in here, and the devil hasn't stolen the seed from your heart. It's planted deep in you. And, and your past feeling like you can't be forgiven and you have been forgiven but you sit here today and you say well i'm just not really engaged anymore because 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 strategy three has taken hold in your life and the devil has like just sent a wave of life at you so you just really don't have time anymore to live for jesus like like you wanted to that's one of the devil's strategies and it's a highly effective strategy for many christians and then if that won't work and we see the devil do step four often He'll work to environmentally, and I want to tell you what I mean by this in a minute. He'll work to environmentally crush both Christians and non-Christians alike with the trouble of the world. Say, what do you mean by that? I mean this. God will put you in an environment and in a situation that makes you really question who God is. And if God is fair. And if it's worth it to serve Him. He he just, just from the life that is lived in you and around you. You just have real doubts over whether or not God is someone you want to be close to. I don't know that I would have understood step four, even teaching it. I don't know that I would have really understood this four years ago. But I've had some things in the last four years happen that really kind of bear witness with my spirit that show me that this strategy has been used on me spiritually. The first was about two years ago. Uh, three days after that F5 tornado hit Joplin, I was in Joplin with a team of almost 20 people from our church serving. And up until that time, my theology was kind of, you know, God is good and I trust him and, you know, life is great. I, you know, I kind of had a, a, a very shallow theology. And I was standing across from um, Joplin High School, uh, on just, just across the street from Joplin High School. And, and the high school... Um, it wasn't gone, but it, it had been badly destroyed. And on that night, they were having graduation. And kids were leaving graduation. And as they walked out, they heard the tornado sirens and they saw the tornado coming. And lots walked back in and more than a dozen were killed in the high school at their graduation ceremony when the gym collapsed on them. And across the street from the high school, like just catty corner to the high school, was, was a church that used to be there but was gone. Um, and, and I don't say, it wasn't destroyed, it was gone. Someone had told me there used to be a church here. That's the only reason that I had known. And I was getting ready to, to start a church. And I thought, man, can you imagine if you started a church only to have it get blown away by a tornado like that? That's really messed up. And I'm standing in the driveway of a, of a home that's not, that's not a home. It's not there anymore. 
It wasn't knocked down, it was gone. Literally, it was a driveway leading to nothing. The trees were gone, the grass was gone, the house was gone. There, there weren't clothes and, and, and piles of wood. I mean, there was nothing, it was gone. And I stood in that driveway and I just thought, you know, I don't get this spiritually. I don't get how God could allow innocent people in that high school to die. And I don't understand how that church that someone like put blood, sweat, and tears into is gone. And I don't understand, like, what if the people who lived in this house, like, what if they loved Jesus and were doing a great... Like, this doesn't make sense to me. And I found myself in an environment that made me question whether everything that I believed in here, whether it was real, and whether I could trust God, and whether I could keep moving forward for God. I had a real similar experience just a, a little before that when I sat in an ICU room with a good friend of mine whose son had died, his elementary age son had died very suddenly. And we sat there in the ICU room, and it was he and his wife, and me and my wife, and his beautiful little son was laying on the bed, but he had died, and they were just allowing him to spend time with him. And I remember in that environment thinking, this isn't right. Like, this is not right. Spiritually, I don't get this. I remember two weeks ago when I found out my 35-year-old cousin had stage 3 cancer. And the outlook was really bad. Three young children under the age of 10. I remember finding myself in an environment saying, that's, you know, this can't be right. And Satan will take those times in our life and he'll take that environment and he'll press it into our spirit and say, God can't be real. And if he is real, he can't be trusted. And if he can be trusted, why would you trust him? Look what he's done to these people. And he'll use those environmental things in our life to really separate us from God so that we don't want to be close to God. And for me, for me, I had to kind of wrestle through this. And I had to ask God some hard questions. God, why would you create a planet Earth that had tornadoes that would destroy people? And God whispered into my soul, Christian, I did not create a planet Earth that had tornadoes to destroy people. Go back and read it. I created perfection. It didn't even rain. The Earth actually watered itself. But Satan came in and he messed it up. And Romans 1 says now that the earth is groaning with the pains of sin. See, Satan messed up the earth. So the earth now is fighting against itself. And I asked God, God, how could you create a human race that would one day have cancer? He said, hang on, Christian. I didn't create cancer. You, you're giving me too much credit, Christian. Go back to Genesis. Look in Genesis. Did I create cancer? No, God. You created human beings that were supposed to be perfectly healthy and live forever in an intimate relationship with you. But Romans 5 says when sin entered the world, death came by sin. Disease came by sin. See, Satan put sin in my world. I created it perfect. He messed it up. So I think about people dying, think about people getting sick, think about tragedies. And I think, you know what? That's not on God. That's on Satan has messed all this up. And he's done it so that we'll back away from God so we'll have the same fate as him one day that we'll never be close to God. When you realize the devil's strategy, and remember, Jesus said you need to realize his strategy. Peter said you need to realize his strategy. Paul said you need to realize his strategy. When you realize his strategy, you kind of step back and you're able to wrestle through things and see where you can trust God and where you can recognize where God's plan has been radically adjusted 
through what Satan has done in our world. John 16.33 says, In this world you'll have trouble, but take heart, I've overcome the world. That comes at the very end of saying, The Spirit's coming to help, this Spirit's coming to hurt. It's going to be hard, but I'll be with you and it'll be okay if you'll learn to press into me and stay filled up spiritually like we talked about last week. So that's the devil's strategy for you. Just looking scripturally at his strategy for the world in general, we we see a couple things that we need to be aware of. One, sometimes it's very personal. In Luke chapter 22 and in Job chapter 1, we we find out that Satan knows people's names. He knows their families' names. He knows where they live. He knows what they do for a living. He even knows what they struggle with, and he knows where they will be susceptible to spiritual temptation and falling spiritually. We learn that about Peter, and we learn that about Job. Now, does Satan work with every human being in the world personally? The answer to that question is no. Sometimes we give credit to Satan that is only due to God. Satan is not God. Satan is not a God. Satan is not just an evil God. We talk in in Scripture about God being uh, omnipresent, which means he's everywhere all at once, which means tonight when I go home and lay my head down to bed, God's going to be in my house and he's going to be in your house. But angelic beings are not omnipresent. They can be in one place at one time. That means if I lay my head down tonight and Satan's at my house, he's not at your house. That means if I go to bed tonight and Satan's doing something in Africa, then he's not doing something in America. And if he's doing something in America, he's not doing something in India. He's just one spirit. And sure, he comes after people personally. We find out the more influence people have for Jesus, the more Satan will know who they are, the more demons will know who they are. And sometimes there's very personal attack. But usually it's on a broad scope of just just through the world we live in trying to keep people from God. Sometimes it's personal. We find out it's always organized and many times delegated when Satan's working in the world. And you might just jot out on your notes, it's, it's, kind of, it's, it's like a government. And I'll tell you why I believe that Satan's kingdom is structured like a government. In Ephesians chapter 6, verses 11 and 12, Paul says, "...put on the full armor of God so you can take your stand against the devil's schemes." For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against rulers, against authorities, against powers of this dark world, and against spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Paul uses governmental words there. Rulers, principality, powers, even down to forces like armies. And he said Satan has kind of structured his kingdom like someone would structure a country, and he's got different demons doing different types of things. Now, we look at this word demons. Demons are fallen angels. There's nearly a hundred verses in the Bible that reference demons. If you do not believe in demons, or you choose not to believe in demons, then you can't believe the Bible. I hear people say to me all the time, Christian, I just don't really believe in the Bible, in Satan. And I say, then you can't believe in the Bible. Well, Christian, you know, I just don't believe that I believe in demonic stuff. Well, what about Jesus casting demons out of people? Like, it might be uncomfortable to believe, but, but you can't just say you don't believe Because if you don't believe that, you can't believe any of it. You can't kind of pick and choose what's in the Bible. Now, um, demons are fallen angels. Angels, as we'll learn next week. By the way, next week's going to be much more positive. We're going to talk about good angels next week. Um, Be much happier. No one will have nightmares. Um, Angels are spirit beings who assist in carrying out the will of God. As we study angels, Genesis to Revelation. You don't need to write that down. I'll give it to you again next week. But that means demons then exist as spirit beings to carry out the will of Satan. And when we look at demonic activity in the world, here's where we really dig into it. And here's what I want you to do right now. 
I want you to picture from now until the end of the message as a spiritual stethoscope. You all know what a stethoscope is? It's that really cold thing the doctor puts up your shirt to hear your heart. He places it on your chest. He puts a little thing in his ears and he says, take a deep breath. And then he does it on your back. And um, it's, it's the way to kind of identify what's going on on the inside. The last few sections of this message, my hope for you, is that they'll serve as a spiritual stethoscope. So you can identify from now for the rest of your life when the devil might be knocking on the door of your spirit. And when the, when the devil may be having some kind of spiritual influence on you that you weren't aware of. And I want to show you through scripture how the devil worked so you can understand in your life for the rest of your life anytime you feel one of these eight things I'm going to share with you that you'll step back and say, well, I think this is spiritual in nature and I need to pray or I need to get into the Word, or I need to get into some worship music, or I need to go to small group this week, or I need to get back in church. I want to show you some things that are spiritual in nature, according to Scripture. So when we look at demonic activity, we find out that Satan through Scripture worked in three ways. The first way was spiritual oppression. Spiritual oppression. If you can think of the word oppressive. The heat in Kansas City the last week has been oppressive. Um, basically, this, this is Satan pressing down on people spiritually. And I want, to, I want to give you just a little saying so that you can remember this. I believe the devil's oppression works in 4D, like 3D. Um, but I had our early service write down, write down the words, the devil in 4D. Um, not that it's a movie that we want to see or promote to be seen, but the devil in 4D. Because I want to show you some ways that the devil works that for the rest of your life when you're experiencing these, you need to stop and say, wait a minute, could this be spiritual in nature? The devil works in Scripture, uh, number one, through depression. This is a spirit that we see brought on King Saul in the book of 1 Samuel. This is a spirit that we see carried through the New Testament, the spirit of depression. Now, I don't think everyone who's depressed is being spiritually attacked. But I think people who are under spiritual attack feel large amounts of depression. The second D, I think people who are under spiritual attack feel large amounts of discouragement. Both they and their families. If you just did a Bible study, you went through Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, and the book of Acts and wrote down every occurrence of someone who was demon-possessed or demon-oppressed or family members who were dealing with this, you would see these elements of depression, discouragement. Number three, discontent. We actually see this a lot in the temptation of Satan with humanity trying to breathe the spirit of discontent. This isn't good enough. I don't make enough. I don't get treated good enough. You know, I just want a better life. I want a better vacation. I want a better car. I want a better house. I need to make more money. Just this, you know, this spirit of discontent that nothing is good enough. We find out that spirit is heavy when you're under spiritual attack. And then number four, division in relationships. When you look and in your family and in your friendships and in your marriage and with your kids, when... When there's just a wedge driven deep, that's a time to step back and say, wait a minute, is this spiritual in nature? Now, I want you, and I, I think, Jan, thank you for putting those up there. I, I want you to look at those words, and I want you to ask yourself this question. Are you maybe under spiritual attack right now? That before today, you wouldn't have even known about, but Jesus said you need to be aware of this. When you look at these words, when you put the spiritual stethoscope up to your heart today, are you under spiritual attack? Because here's what it looks like, depression discouragement, discontent, division in relationships. Are you under spiritual attack that you need to recognize and begin to pray, dig into God's Word, 
get with some Christian friends and talk to them. Go to your small group. Get kind of reconnected back into church. Because this is what spiritual attack looks like. This is what demonic oppression looks like. Pressing down to crush people's spirits. Oppression sometimes will lead to obsession. Now, you often don't see this in churches, but I believe we see this in culture. Demonic obsession. There is, just walk into a blockbuster if they even exist anymore. And look at the the movies on the shelf of demonic activity. Uh, Go to the music store and look at the satanic music. Um, Look at what's happening uh, in movies right now if you were to go. Look at all the paranormal, scary, deeply demonic things. I think our culture has an obsession with demonic things. And, And that's scary. Uh, Dr. Town says, understanding demons is especially important for the Christian. The Bible makes it clear we are engaged in spiritual warfare. As we seek to win the battle, it's to our best advantage to understand not only Satan, but his messengers. But a word of caution is in order. It's good to know about demons, but we shouldn't be obsessed with learning about them. So if you're planning to go home today and get your Ouija board out and ask the devil, like, it's cool. It's what Christian saying sure, That's a bad idea. You should burn that. Um, and any other satanic paraphernalia you you have. I was on a, a flight Monday on the way to speak for my dad just south of Chicago this week. He's the athletic director at a small Christian college, and I spoke to all the athletes this week on Tuesday night. But on the way up, I was preparing for my message, and I, and I brought all my books on um, Satan and demons with me. And I'm sitting on this flight that's absolutely jammed. And I've got one book laid out, you know, Satan, and one, you know, how demons work, and, how, you know, how to understand demons and Satan. And I could tell, like, the whole flight, she was very uncomfortable sitting next to me studying all this stuff. And finally, when we landed, and I put my stuff away, she looked over at me and said, um, what exactly do you do that you've been reading about Satan the whole way? And I got to explain to her kind of what we were doing and how it worked. But, but an obsession with demonic things. Hey, let's go home and watch The Exorcist. Is, is not only healthy, uh, is not only unhealthy, it's very dangerous. Because demonic obsession in the rarest form will lead to demonic uh, possession, which we see way more in Scripture than in modern day life. But I want to be honest with you. As I understand life and as I understand people, there's a lot of things I see happen in life. When I see people hurt children and hurt innocent people, where I just think, like when that kid went and shot up that school, in Connecticut, where you just, in the back of your head, understanding the supernatural, you just think, man, that, that, like that kid had to be demon-possessed. To do something like that, you, you have to be so heavily influenced by the dark realms of spiritual things. Uh, and I, I believe that fully. I don't want to dwell on that, but that's how demen- demonic activity works. The devil's strategy may be personal. Certainly he wants to work to depress, discourage, get you discontent, bring division. But we need to understand the devil's strategy is dangerous for us. It's dangerous for us. That's why Jesus and Peter and Paul warned us. It's dangerous for us if we don't know about it. And if we choose to ignore it, thinking that we can overcome it, really we we put ourselves in a place to be taken advantage of spiritually. Dr. Towns says a good football team, if they become overconfident, may lose to a lesser team. Overconfidence will cause a team to play carelessly, allowing the opposition to do things they couldn't otherwise accomplish. So if a Christian doesn't realize that Satan possesses the ability to defeat him, he'll allow Satan to gain victories where he could not otherwise do so. So, Peter says, be alert. And I've given you some spiritual warning signs. Let me give you four more and then we'll be done real quickly. 
If you just zero in on conversations that Satan has with people, there are four themes and four phrases that lace those conversations. One of them was a conversation with Adam and Eve. One of them was a conversation with Jesus while he was tempting him. But if, if you listen, Satan used the exact same strategy. He used the same phrases. He used the same attitudes in trying to help humanity exist without God. And here were the attitudes and phrases Satan used that you and I need to be alert for. Number one, pride. Pride sounds something like this in your spirit. I got this. I got this. You got this. That's what Satan said to Adam and Eve and Jesus. Listen, you got this. I know what God has said to do. But you got this. You know? Yeah, but you got this. It's easy to be tempted as American Christians. Because the American culture says never be dependent on anyone and always kind of reject authority or at least question it. Christianity says you can't be a good Christian unless you're totally dependent on someone else for your forgiveness and salvation. And you are totally submissive to authority even when you don't understand it or even when you disagree with it. So submission and dependency are the two greatest Christian characteristics you can have. And they make you really weak as an, as an American. And a lot of times we say, you know, I feel like I need to draw near to God, but I got this. I got this. Beware of that spirit of pride. Beware of the spirit of unbelief. Satan phrased it this way. Did God really say? Did God really say? With Jesus, he just tried to twist Scripture so that Jesus would take care of himself rather than honor Scripture. With Adam and Eve, it was this. I know God said that, but do you really think he's going to hold you accountable? Like, yes, God said don't do this. And he said if you do this, you're going to die. But do you really think God's going to hold you accountable? There are a lot of Christians who know what the Bible says about life, parenting, marriage, morality, money. They know what the Bible says. They don't do it because they just they don't believe they're going to be accountable for it. At the end of the day, it's unbelief. Like, what's God going to do? That is a satanic thought. Self-deception. Self-deception says you can do this halfway. Satan said, listen, I know you're here so that the kingdoms of the world will bow down to you, but why don't we do that my way? It's a lot easier. He told Adam and Eve, listen, you don't have to follow God all the way. You'll really be more like God if you do this. And there's a lot of people who want to do Christianity on their terms. Where's that come from? That comes from the spirit of the devil in culture. I don't want to say the devil's in your heart. I don't want to say the devil's in your head. But in culture, this thought of, yes, I'm going to give my life to Jesus, but kind of on my own terms. That comes from Satan. And then finally, entitlement. This attitude of entitlement that says you deserve this. I can't tell you how often when I counsel with couples whose marriages are falling apart that they have a spirit of entitlement. I deserve to be happy. I deserve someone who flirts with me. I deserve someone who tells me I'm pretty. I deserve someone who talks to me. I deserve, I deserve, I did this spirit of entitlement. I deserve this, I deserve this. I did. That comes, if you listen to Satan talk to Adam and even Jesus, that comes from the devil. So here's my question to you. I've given you kind of eight warning signs. Peter said, be alert. Jesus said, watch out. Paul said, look out. For what? Depression, discouragement, discontent, division in relationships, pride, unbelief, self-deception, entitlement. If any of those eight things are coursing through your spiritual DNA right now, you need to back up. Say, all right, Lord, 
help me, like Moses, to see the unseen. Help me understand how this is going to shape my life. Help me understand where I need to repent, where I just need to find answers, where I need to back up, where I need to get help. Help me, Lord, be alert and aware so I can win these battles. Thank you for your spirit of help. Thank you for your warning against the spirit of destruction. Help me to follow you completely.